0: Hello and welcome back uh, once again to Food Toxicology and this is uh, where the course I guess starts getting a little bit more interesting. It gets more interesting because we start to be able to perhaps visualize uh, some of the uh, endpoints of of toxicosis. Uh, What I mean by that is it becomes a physical manifestation as opposed to interactions on the chemical slash biochemical level. This is something that uh, uh, we start getting in this lecture, target organ toxicology, and in the next lecture, teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis, we start looking at some of the endpoints that lead to the manifestation of gross disease. But today we're going to talk about target organ toxicology. Target organ toxicology, in fact, is. something that we're going to use as one of the predecessors to an understanding of toxicosis, Okay, Um, We're going to try, in terms of learning objectives, to define target organ toxicity. We're going to try to explain the basis or specificity of organ toxicity. And then we're going to go through the mechanistic analysis of the various types of target organ toxicity. This will include, for instance, hemotoxicity or blood toxicosis, uh, nephrotoxicity, um, hepatotoxicity, neurotoxicity, dermotoxicity, and pulmonotoxicity. And what these are going to do is give us at least a brief introduction to some of these endpoints. As you can imagine, in medical toxicology, each one of the toxic endpoints has a whole entire profession, so we can't. Uh, begin to address all of the ramifications of understanding all of these organs and all the potential aspects of toxicosis relative to their functions. We will, however, try to provide an introductory understanding of some of these mechanisms of target organ toxicology. We're also going to describe some examples of target organ toxicity. We're going to try to identify some of the characteristic procedures that are used in terms of clinical uh, medicine for determining toxicity in a target organ. How do we know that, for instance, renal function is impaired? We're going to do a little bit of an opportunistic uh, analysis here in this lecture. It's although it's not really a target organ toxicosis, and typically it has its endpoint in multi-organ or multi-system failure. Uh, we're going to try to explain the concept of oxidative stress and we're going to try to understand the roles of the cascading effects of the enzymes the antioxidant enzymes and their response to redox cycling compounds in food and in food toxicology we always hear about uh, the antioxidant properties of various chemicals various additives uh, nutrients vitamins and food types uh, what we're going to try to do is understand the physiological basis of why, in fact, antioxidants in our diet are a good thing. Well, let's begin with uh, some definitions of target organ toxicity. And we can talk about it as the collection of adverse effects or disease states manifested in specific organs in the body. Okay, And sometimes uh, we can relate the potential for an organ to have a specific toxicosis relative to its cardiac output an organ that gets higher blood flow on a time basis will actually perhaps be exposed in terms of for instance first pass effects in the liver Okay, some of these organs actually have specialized tissues and specialized cells, their properties are, in fact, uh, uh, appropriate for an interaction with the chemical compound. Sometimes these can be uh, because it is a uh, principally just a chemically reactive substrate. Or, for example, in the liver, uh, when we go through biotransformation and intoxicate or toxicate, enhance the toxicity of a chemical, that we, in fact, can uh, have a cascade of effects because of the organ's process on that chemical. There are differentiated cellular processes and receptors, and so these, this differentiation actually will have customized uh, relationships or chemical reactivity with certain specific chemicals. Okay, Receptors, uh, typically proteins, uh, will have uh, uh, conformational and charge sort of dynamics in terms of the relationship of the receptor and, uh, for instance, the hormone or the reactivating chemical. Sometimes these toxicants and metabolites can have specific reactive pathways. Um, This might uh, be because of its size, uh, its uh, electron distribution, certain types of functional groups, uh, certain types of reactions with systems, for instance, immune-mediated reactions. Now, some toxicants do not affect all organs to the same uh, extent And this is uh, perhaps understandable in that these organs have organelles and cellular structures and therefore chemical and biochemical relationships that are probably going to be different. Uh, for instance, uh, lipophilicity of a particular organ, the fat content, uh, the potential for that organ to biotransform it, the, f- the potential of that organ to store that particular toxicant will all have an effect. And so it may, in fact, have uh, several sites of action and several different target organs, or it may actually zero in on one particular organ. Multitoxicant exposure, uh, in fact, may target the same organ. For example, um, if there is a uh, biotransformation process occurring in the liver with one particular chemical and another toxicant is simultaneously uh, exposed, we can have some additive or synergistic effects of the toxicosis resulting from the reaction of those two products or those two chemicals or their metabolic products. The target organ uh, may may or may not be the site for storage. Uh, For example, when we see hepatotoxicity from chlorinated hydrocarbons, those chlorinated hydrocarbons are typically going to be stored in lipid tissues. We also find the toxicokinetic processes, the ability of a toxin to chemically change over time uh, is going to help determine the concentration at target organs. Well, in terms of uh, exposure of particular organs to a toxicant, one of the best uh, indicators of of perhaps susceptibility is looking at uh, the relative cardiac output to the particular organs. And I talked briefly in other lectures about uh, the difference, for instance, in blood flow dynamics uh, during rest and, and in exercise. Things will change, but in this particular study, this is the resting cardiac output in percent for a 63-kilogram male. And this individual is at rest. And you can see that out of the 100% cardiac output, uh, 27% is uh, to the liver, 23% three percent to the kidney relative to 13.9 percent in the brain and heart muscle down here at four point seven and so uh, single digits for many uh, organs the liver getting the most cardiac output should actually give you a little bit of an indication that in fact there's something that the liver needs to do with whatever the blood is carrying another way to look at this is the resting blood flow the actual volume over unit time that's flowing to the organ. And our blood flow uh, for this 63 kilogram male at rest is going to be 5.4 liters or 5,400 milliliters. Of that uh, the liver is again on a flow basis, uh, getting the most flow uh, 1.2 five liters per minute or 1500 milliliters per minute Uh, the kidney as well as processing a lot and so you can tell that these two organs are actually doing a tremendous amount of uh, interaction with all of the chemical substrates then the biochemical substrates that are available in the blood and the blood components This is a little bit of an indication of the initial stages of potential processing of these chemicals and potential uh, toxicants uh, that uh, are uh, systematically distributed throughout the body following exposure. This cartoon gives you uh, a very, very simplified look, and especially as we focus on the liver a little bit of uh, blood circulation, Uh, obviously not a a detailed uh, diagram but as we've kind of indicated before uh, in terms of the blood flow the venous uh, blood flow and the arterial blood flow um, the point I want to make with this particular cartoon has a lot to do with the blood flow to the liver itself you can see that it gets not only arterial flow uh, which makes up about 20 percent of the blood flow to the liver, but about 80% is actually through the portal vein, the portal vein actually uh, coming from the the, uh, uh, vascularization associated with the gastrointestinal tract. So here we get the absorption of nutrients and therefore potential toxicants. The first pass effects here in terms of its processing uh, in the liver prior to its ability to uh, transform or uh, metabolize or catabolize those substrates uh, either as toxicants and detoxify it or as nutrients to metabolize or uh, polymerize some of the biomolecules of life Uh, this helps us kind of understand why in fact uh, the liver gets uh, one and a half liters per minute of blood perfused to this organ and so this filter this bioactive filter if you will uh, is exceptionally important in this whole first pass arrangement from taking all of the nutrients and therefore taking all of the uh, potential foodborne uh, toxicants and uh, routing them into uh, potential phase one and phase two biotransformation. Now we're going to start on our list of uh, target organ uh, toxicities, and the first one we're going to uh, attempt to describe briefly here is hemotoxicity or blood toxicity. It's good to uh, recall from any of your basic biology or physiology or anatomy courses uh, what the basic blood cell components are. Uh, they include in broad categories, erythrocytes, uh, the red blood cells, leukocytes, the white blood cells, and the thrombocytes or the clotting factors uh, associated with blood. Hemotoxicity is defined when either the number or the function of any type of blood cell is toxicant impaired, okay? And so we've uh, learned in this course so far about a couple of uh, hemotoxicity advents and things like methemoglobinemia or cyanide toxicity, where the oxygen exchange capacity of hemoglobin or uh, other uh, oxygen transport uh, uh, chemicals is actually impaired so for example some of the functional uh, changes that might occur things like nitrate nitrite uh, toxicosis leading to methemoglobinemia cyanosis carbon monoxide poisoning sulfide poisoning zinc toxicity all of those uh, uh, potentially changing or interrupting uh, in this particular case oxygen uh, transport uh, capability the number of blood cells uh, can actually be changed via a variety of disease manifestations uh, the number change in terms of red blood cells uh, is referred to as anemia uh, leukemia when you have uh, uh, an increase uh, typically in the leukocytes uh, thrombocytopenia uh, for the thrombocytes and agranulocytopenia for uh, the agranulocytes the way we do evaluation of hemotoxicity is quite simply doing a CBC or complete blood count. Um, if you've ever had a blood test, you notice that uh, if they've done a CBC, they've counted uh, all of the major blood component cells and given you a response in terms of where you are in the range of norms. Okay. Uh, In terms of evaluating uh, impaired oxygen transport, arterial blood gases uh, can be drawn. Uh, You can put on uh, uh, oxygen saturation monitors that look at the color of the blood in terms of a fingertip uh, dermal uh, analysis. And we can also take a look at the toxicant or a metabolic product. For example, in the case of methemoglobinemia, where we've got an oxidation of ferrous iron on hemoglobin to ferric iron, which does not transport uh, uh, oxygen, uh, the color of the blood and the, t- the uh, capacity of the blood changes, and this can be analyzed in terms of direct concentrations via a clinical uh, laboratory analysis. Now, I'm going to give you a quick case study here, and again, this is from Mortality and Morbidity Weekly, and this is in uh, New York City in 19- Uh, sorry 2002 and this is methemoglobinemia following an unintentional ingestion of sodium nitrite and so we've gone through the basic uh, biochemical processes in terms of the oxidation of ferrous to ferric iron and hemoglobin in this particular toxicosis this gives you an idea of what happens uh, when things go wrong Uh, and uh, in terms of reviewing this we've got uh, some middle eastern individuals uh, five total Uh, 40-somethings, an elderly individual at 60 uh, and a younger one at 29. Um, They ate a meal and reported dizziness, lightheadedness, and cyanosis uh, almost immediately after sharing a meal, Uh, vomiting, and uh, there was another individual in the household uh, that actually did not eat the meal. Uh, the uh, emergency technicians on arrival uh, uh, recognized uh, that there was a big problem. There was unresponsiveness in at least one of the individuals. There was progressive respiratory distress and loss of consciousness uh, in, in the individuals. And uh, uh, they were intubated, in other words, uh, had a, uh, a tube placed uh, into the lungs to assist in breathing. The older woman began having seizures in the follow-up of this case uh, at the emergency department they were cyanotic and they had oxygen saturations uh, that were uh, in some cases quite low 72 percent as opposed to normal at 92 percent the blood drawn for routine testing came out in a typical sort of black or darkish color uh, typical of methemoglobinemia empiric therapy meaning uh the idea was uh in terms of consultation with poison control this is classic signs and symptoms of nitrate uh, nitrite toxicosis and methemoglobinemia uh, treatment with uh, methylene blue and we show a little uh, container of of that particular uh, dye uh, which is a reducing dye um, was uh, administered to these uh, individuals and the patients uh, blood came back from a laboratory with uh, very high methemoglobin levels, and they were uh, 21 to 87%, uh, whereas the normal, in terms of methemoglobin, uh, is about one to three percent. And so their oxygen carrying capacity was exceptionally low, and probably untreated uh, would have resulted in death. Uh, within 10 to 15 minutes of uh, administration of this particular chemical compound, uh, methylene blue, the cyanosis resolved and oxygenation improved. Uh, as it turns out, uh, a couple of the individual patients uh, actually were hospitalized uh, for uh, several days afterwards. Uh, the follow-up uh, disease epidemiological investigation in terms of the Poison Control Center uh, suggested that uh, an individual friend acquaintance of, of these folks uh, actually uh, had uh, put a uh, sodium nitrite, uh, which is a uh, salt-looking crystal, if you would, into a bag that was marked uh, iodized table salt. Uh, It was marked uh, in English and in Arabic. Um, This uh, mislabeling, if you will, uh, uh, led to a series of incidents and uh, finally use in a meal. Uh, the meal contained, uh, again, toxic levels of sodium nitrite with the methemoglobinemia outcome. And so this is not uh, how it's supposed to happen. Uh, the the uh, um, idea of a chemical, a potentially toxic chemical, being put into a food uh, in high-dose concentrations uh, is a cause for concern and warns us to kind of uh, be very careful about uh, what we use around the household and make sure that uh, we don't mislabel things. Turning to our next uh, uh, target organ uh, toxicity, it's hepatotoxicity. Uh, As I've kind of indicated in many comments here in the earlier stages of this course, uh, the liver is a very functionally important organ uh, for life processes uh, in terms of its ability to biosynthesize many of the molecules of life and and many of the polymers. that uh, are required for life. Um, It's the most important organ in the whole detoxification and biotransformation pathway uh, in terms of toxicology. Uh, Its high cardiac output and first-pass effects uh, make sure that, in fact, uh, it does uh, get a high dose and, therefore, a potential load of of, uh, toxins and, therefore, uh, the subsequent injury. Uh, as it turns out, the liver is a highly regenerable organ and so can stand a significant amount of abuse. However, we find that chronic abuse, uh, such as chronic alcoholism, will lead to uh, uh, repair and the development of scar tissue, uh, cirrhotic livers uh, over time. And this uh, cirrhosis or fibroid material will disrupt blood flow, disrupt capacity of the liver, and uh, have a final manifestation in liver disease. We've also talked uh, in several times about intrahepatic recirculation, and again, there's a cartoon on the website showing an animation of how we have a potential for re-exposure because as the liver kicks out, uh, biotransform metabolites, typically uh, large phase two uh, metabolites, Uh, through the bile, um, there is a potential for reabsorption uh, again through the portal vein and uh, uh, enterohepatic recirculation. This gives you an idea of what uh, liver disease uh, looks like. This particular uh, liver, uh, which is a bovine liver cross-section, this is a macro cross-section and you can see uh, by the uh, tremendous discoloration that this is not a healthy organ. Uh, The uh, lighter parts are the infarcted parts where the blood flow has been interrupted. Uh, You get some hemorrhage here in terms of tremendous amounts of blood collection, Uh, some necrotic tissue in terms of tissue where the cell walls are starting to dissolve. Uh, The cell structure is uh, starting to to disappear from the organ. This is uh, an organ uh, in failure uh, manifested from uh, a particular disease syndrome uh, which I'm not sure in this particular case. In terms of liver histology, um, as we uh, take a look at uh, how the liver operates on a microscopic basis, we've introduced, and the book uh, introduces as well in terms of some cartoon diagrams, the functional subunit of the liver as the liver lobules. And these liver lobules are collections of hepatocytes, uh, and uh, they have a specific repeating structure, if you will, a redundancy. Um, and so there is a tremendous amount of what, what you might uh, uh, call parallel processing in terms of the uh, biotransformation of the chemical substrates in, uh, in blood. And so this gives you an idea of the collection of hepatocytes uh, within a lobule. Uh, the vascularization in terms of the hepatic artery in the portal vein, and uh, as well uh, the bile duct uh, for uh, uh, the uh, excretion, the synthesis of the uh, uh, bile compounds, and the excretion uh, in collection, finally, in the gallbladder. In terms of uh, the manifestation of hepatotoxicity, um, we can have uh, cytotoxic endpoints. Uh, where in fact uh, the individuals or collections of cells are are, uh, killed. Uh, This might happen as a result of lipid peroxidation, uh, oxidative stress, and we'll talk about how that happens. Remember that the membranes on the exterior cells, uh, the exteriors of cells, uh, are nothing more than a lipid bilayer. They're chemicals that can actually be acted on by other uh, bioactive chemicals or chemically reactive chemicals. Uh, If you do have a strong oxidant, like a free radical, you have the potential for oxidizing this, disrupting the cell membrane, and therefore uh, disrupting the entire cell structure. Uh, Necrosis or cell death or tissue death, um, cirrhosis, fibrosis, as I've uh, said before, in terms of sustained or chronic injury and the formation of uh, scarring, scarred tissue, that will disrupt flow and function of the organ as well as the uh, potential development uh, of fatty liver, uh, the actual deposit of fatty materials in some of the sinuses of the the liver material, uh, such that it also then uh, ends up uh, uh, following uh, a a blood flow pattern that is abnormal. We can have uh, cholestatic hepatotoxicity, where the flow of bile is interrupted, Uh, This can be, again, via uh, physical barriers such as uh, scarring or the uh, potential um, uh, development of of things like uh, gallstones, actual deposits of mineral material that uh, block the various uh, outlets for bile as it's produced. We test, in terms of clinical medicine, uh, liver function by looking at a series of uh, blood indicators, typically liver enzymes. Um, There are certain types of enzymes that uh, show up in your blood in terms of normal levels. Uh, But by and large, liver enzymes ought to be in the liver. And therefore, uh, high concentrations of liver enzymes found in the blood suggest that there is tissue damage on a cellular basis at, at a minimum in the liver and that the liver is trying to respond and perhaps not. So uh, liver failure is sometimes uh, strongly indicated by the appearance of high levels of certain liver enzymes in the blood. There is, well, uh, the potential for gross tissue effects Uh, in clinical medicine. uh, The way we do this on a a, a living patient is perhaps uh, one of the more uh, invasive uh, procedures uh, uh, that uh, short of surgery and that's through a liver punch or liver biopsy, where a large-gauge needle is actually uh, inserted uh, through the skin and into the liver. Again, the liver is a very regenerable organ, and uh, a plug of tissue is taken and examined microscopically uh, to to examine for uh, various uh, sorts of physical or morphological uh, disruptions in the liver tissue. Now, what we're going to do here is uh, do a little bit of a sidebar. Um, Again, not a formal area of target organ toxicology. But because uh, oxidative stress is a broad-based manifestation of uh, several modes of of toxicosis uh, and uh, can result in tissue damage and target organ toxicology and systemic effects, uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to to put it in uh, this particular lecture. Uh, why are we susceptible to oxidative stress? Well, all aerobes, all air breathers, uh, like ourselves, we generate free radicals in our normal respiratory function. So, in a certain sense, uh, we are combining with oxygen, and in this combining with oxygen, this oxidation process, we have uh, essentially some uh, enzymes that uh, act as as the f- the firemen, if you will, um, that uh, uh, at least if not uh, put the fire out uh, keep it as a controlled burn and that controlled burn is a part of our respiratory energy cycle our normal antioxidant enzyme system actually detoxifies the uh, free radical byproduct superoxide from our normal respiration processes what's kind of interesting about these uh, is that these antioxidant enzymes are inducible uh, what you find for instance is uh, that uh, athletes uh, will have a tremendous capacity uh, to turn over uh, oxygen, or VO2 max. Uh, They can breathe in and process a tremendous amount of oxygen. Uh, They don't burn up because, in fact, their inducible enzyme levels are typically uh, quite a bit higher than yours or mine. Some of these enzymes include catalase uh, superoxide dismutase, sometimes known as SOD, Uh, And glutathione peroxidase, uh, GSHPX, uh, for glutathione peroxidase. In terms of uh, redox, in terms of uh, lipid peroxidation, the beginning of the chain of reactions uh, has to do with uh, electron transport from redox cycling compounds. I like to think of redox cycling compounds as miniature batteries, uh, kind of like the Energizer Bunny, they keep going and going. Uh, they can be charged and discharged uh, and uh, chemically, on a chemical basis. And some of these uh, xenobiotics, they're readily oxidized and sequentially reduced by normal biochemical processes. These sometimes can lead to radical formation, and because it is a regenerable cycle, the battery is there. It's just that the electron uh, redox state has changed on each cycle. Again, the toxic endpoints, we've talked about lipid peroxidation. But when you have free radicals, uh, free radicals are free electrons. uh, They are electrophilic. DNA um, has a tremendously uh, large number of uh, uh, polar functional groups, uh, nitrogens and oxygens. And so the potential for DNA strand breaks is uh, one of the toxic endpoints of oxidative stress. Typically, the redox cycling compounds are highly polar, and they are, have the ability to be oxidized uh, by oxygen. And so that gives us a kind of chemical uh, selection in terms of some of the uh, oxidizing chemicals that will induce free radical formation. Uh, these compounds are also able to be reduced by the flavin enzyme, FIAD. Give you an idea of some chemicals uh, that are well-known classic examples of redox cycling compounds. The bipyrithol herbicide paraquat we introduced in our pesticides in food uh, discussion. Paraquat uh, is a classical test compound uh, used for uh, oxidative stress studies. Various nitroaromatics uh, are in that category, as are some chelated metals such as zinc. And so there's. Uh, many compounds that actually form this cluster of redox cycling compounds that have the attributes of able to be oxidized by oxygen and able to be reduced by FAD. In terms of uh, some of the end products, these reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species that are some of the end products of the free radical reactions generated by redox cycling compounds, and in the next few slides I'll give you uh, an actual metabolic pathway so you have an idea of the complexity of uh, the oxidative stress and redox cycling process. But I'd like to introduce a few of the compounds, Uh, superoxide, O2-, again, a respiratory product, hydroxyl radicals, uh, actually an environmental and photochemically produced uh, radical, um, peroxyl and alkoxyl radicals, and reactive nitrogen species, such as some of the oxides of nitrogen, some of these are actually uh, important uh, in uh, immunological function in terms of uh, cell function and cell interactions. Now, these reactive radical species, <coughs> excuse me, where do they come from? Well, obviously, uh, from breathing oxygen in terms of our normal respiratory processes they come from uh, uv radiation they come from infections some infectious processes produce free radicals and as well oxidants and uh, redox cycling compounds uh, that exist in uh, our diet and in environmental exposure in terms of uh, some pollutants now the characteristics of these free radicals they're highly reactive no electron likes to be alone if you remember from freshman chemistry so they're looking for pairs Uh, They can initiate chain reactions. Uh, They typically will seek out and find electron-rich molecules, in other words, electrophilic. Uh, They will damage cells and DNA. They are a factor in degenerative disease. When you talk about antioxidants uh, and uh, diet, you see perhaps linkages in the clinical data, Uh, examining um, the aging process Uh, in a certain sense uh, some folks think that a large part of the degeneration of the tissues uh, that we find in elderly people is the response to uh, this lifelong uh, oxidation Uh, we live and breathe uh, uh, in an oxidizing environment Antioxidants, whether it be from a normal diet or from a biosynthesis enzyme, inducible enzyme processes, these chemical compounds are actually radical scavengers. So we find vitamin C and beta-carotene quenching reactive oxygen. We find vitamin E and beta-carotene breaking the chain reactions that radicals initiate. Uh, We find uh, selenium selenium glutathione peroxidase uh, as uh, quenching a uh, peroxide-driven oxidation. Now we have to recognize that not all oxidation is bad. Uh, There are a number of beneficial oxidative processes, Uh, one of these being chemotaxis of cells with uh, immunological functions. phagocytosis uh, actually includes an oxidative process, as does clotting mechanisms and program cell death or apoptosis. Now in terms of antioxidants, how do they work in terms of our dietary exposure or our physiological enzyme systems? They can uh, broadly, they can decrease the reactive oxygen species or reactive nitrogen species uh, formation. Uh, They can bind redox uh, cycling metal ions. Uh, They can scavenge uh, these reactive species and their precursors. Uh, They can help with the adaptive antioxidant uh, enzyme response. Uh, They can also repair some of the oxidative damage to biomolecules, as well as enhancing some of the repair enzymes. Uh, the citation i give for much of the antioxidant work is from a national academy's uh, institute of medicine analysis of antioxidants in food that occurred in the year 2000 Uh, this is easily found uh, by by googling it's a comprehensive tome uh, a few years out of date now but in general gives an overview of some of the claims of uh, antioxidants and specifically of nutraceuticals uh, and uh, food additives Uh, to find out if, in fact, uh, some of the claims, some of the data, what's the state of the art uh, in 2000 in terms of uh, uh, food and antioxidants. Uh, It'll give you at least a good uh, reading on uh, what uh, the range of data in the published literature is. Uh, By and large, the conclusions of this report is uh, uh, listen to your mom, eat your fruits and vegetables because that's where the most important antioxidants come from. Uh, Supplementation may help, uh, especially in degenerative disease or in uh, situations where uh, the diet is deficient in these particular uh, uh, nutrients but uh, by and large, eating a healthy diet uh, is uh, providing you with a tremendous load of the required antioxidants. Now, this next uh, graphic is quite complex. It's going to probably require some self-study. On the website, I've uh, put an enlargeable version so you can actually pick out all the pieces, but I did want to give you... A holistic figure uh, to to allow you to kind of gauge uh, some of the different aspects of the pathway of oxidative stress I'm going to start here in the in the redox cycle and here I've got this uh, redox cycling compound I've got a parent compound and a radical uh, metabolite again it gets recharged by the flavin enzyme and and, uh, FAD on, on this side of the cycle the radical metabolite itself is reactive. It can covalently bind to nucleic acids uh, and bind to proteins and perhaps inactivate enzymes, all being toxic, uh, potentially toxic endpoints. The pathway that we're most concerned about is actually uh, the oxidation of oxygen to superoxide. That can be acted on directly uh, via superoxide nismitase. Uh, quite often, it's a manganese or a zinc enzyme. Uh, to uh, release it of its uh, extra uh, electron. It can also get octanon directly at that stage by catalase, which is a, uh, typically an iron-bearing enzyme. Uh, unfortunately, one of the end products of catalase uh, interaction with superoxide can be hydroxyl radicals. Uh, that can have the endpoint of enzyme inactivation, lipid peroxidation, or DNA strand breaks. In terms of the cascading events, in uh, terms of enzymatic uh, antioxidants, uh, we have superoxide dismutase, uh, which actually can create uh, a um, uh, hydrogen peroxide as an end product as well. Uh, this hydrogen peroxide is still a uh, very oxidizing and therefore very toxic. Uh, chemical compound and needs to be acted on or reduced in terms of its potential impact on cell walls and tissues. And so we actually have the next stage in that, and that's the glutathione peroxidase stage where we can take peroxide and convert it uh, through water with the cofactor of glutathione. And so this allows us to actually um, recharge this particular system and take this particular oxidized substrate uh, all the way to water, okay? So that gives you an idea of not only the endpoints, but the processes uh, involved uh, in the multiple processes involved in the oxidative stress cycle. Some of the endpoints of oxidative stress uh, that we just covered in that graphic I want to point out are lipid peroxidation, DNA strand breaks, enzyme inactivation, we can have covalent binding to nucleic acids of some of the metabolic products. uh, And as well, these products or some of the free radicals can covalently bind to proteins, all of these being potentially toxic endpoints. Now, the enzymatic response uh, that perhaps is most important in terms of this, and this is a subset of the graphic uh, I put on before, we developed this reactive superoxide free radical. We've got manganese superoxide dismutase. We've got selenium glutathione peroxidase. Um, We've got iron catalase. You can see the interrelationship of of these uh, antioxidant enzymes. And again, I want to express that these antioxidant enzymes are inducible. Uh, So their levels will adjust to the needs of the organism. Well, the next uh, step in our uh, examination of target organ toxicity is nephrotoxicity. Uh, nephrotoxicity is uh, toxicity, a target organ toxicity directed at the kidney. We'll have to understand the processes of the kidney from a physiological basis to understand what the disruption resulting from nephrotoxicity might have in terms of a toxic endpoint or a physiological consequence. Remember that the kidney has three major processes, glomular filtration, tubular reabsorption, and tubular secretion. So as you go through the substructures of the kidney, you have not only physical, but you have membrane uh, separation of substrates from the blood into the urine channel. Now, in terms of the toxic effects, uh, the nephrotoxicity, if you will, uh, we can have porosity or osmotic changes, uh, porosity changes in, for instance, the physical structures of the glomerulus. Uh, osmotic changes in terms of how the membrane transports in tubular reabsorption, tubular secretion. Um, We can have a modification of the reabsorption and therefore a change in water or electrolyte levels uh, or nutrient loss. Uh, Typically, renal failure will mean that there will be a water uh, and uh, imbalance. uh, And typically, this uh, can be a life-threatening situation. lose the potential active transport uh, of minerals uh, back and, and nutrients back into the blood after they had been uh, transported uh, into the nephron. In terms of kidney histology, this uh, micrograph gives you an idea of uh, what I call basic introductory uh, histology of, the, the, of kidney tissue. Uh, you can see the uh, roundish uh, Bowman's capo- capsule and the glomerulus uh, in a repeating uh, range here in terms of kidney tissue. And again, you can kind of see the, uh, the lumen or the tubular uh, aspects. And again, I go back in terms of histology. It gives us a two-dimensional representation of something that is in fact uh, in three dimensions. So these thin sections, when they're cut, uh, if you take a tube end on, you're going to see a circular representation. But if you take a tube at its endpoint or a rounding, uh, it's going to be an elongated structure. And so you can put your imagination to work to understand that these are, in fact, the uh, proximal and distal tubules of the nephron going up and down uh, in the tissue. This is a thin section. This gives you an idea, if nothing else, that these Tubules are, in fact, tubes. Uh, This particular stain uh, gives a nice representation of, in fact, that these are the piping, so to speak, of the nephrons. And that's going to be important in terms of some kidney dysfunction that we're going to discuss. Some of the syndromes associated with nephrotoxicity, they include uh, nephrotic syndrome, and that's where we have a glomular filtration injury. Uh, And so, for instance, uh, In this particular, the actual size, the pores in the glomerulus uh, actually are damaged. They allow larger molecules to get through. And so we start seeing protein in the urine or proteinuria. Uh, Lead toxicosis uh, is uh, one of the toxic agents that leads to nephrotoxicity manifested as nephrotic syndrome. In other words, these pores, uh, they become gaping holes. These gaping holes are large enough to allow larger molecules. And so we get an exchange where we shouldn't in terms of large molecules, high molecular weight molecules in, at this uh, size critical filtration zone. We have nephritic syndrome. And this also is a glomular filtration injury. It has some of the characteristics of nephrotic uh, uh, filtration injury. Uh, and uh, typically, it's associated with uh, hematuria or hemoglobin uh, in, in urine. Another uh, hemotoxic, I mean, I'm sorry, nephrotoxic consequence is a condition called ATN, or acute tubular necrosis. This is where the tubes of the nephrons are actually damaged. The epithelial lining comes off, the skin cells are shed sometimes. These uh, dead cells will actually plug these tubes. It's kind of like a household plumbing uh, problem. Uh, Depending upon the severity of the disease uh, and the toxic insult and the injury, uh, the tissue may or may not recover. Um, In worst cases, it will not, and there will be uh, chronic uh, renal failure. Um, There can be some impacts uh, in the same sense with tubular reabsorption from chemical reactions on the tubular wall, disrupting or disturbing the membrane and therefore disrupting its uh, capacity to regulate, for instance, osmotic pressure a physical uh, uh, pathology uh, can actually uh, develop in here because of mineral imbalances we can have obstructive uropathies or kidney stones uh, if you will Uh, essentially again more plumbing defects uh, in the uh, uh, tubules of the nephron now this uh, histograph here uh, gives you an idea of what happens in toxic acute tubular necrosis again you see the Bowman's capsule and the glomeruli uh, down here uh, you can see what should be uh, open tubes uh, the lumen is completely closed uh, it looks like uh, uh, impacted tissue if you will or plugged pipes which is exactly what it is uh, there's uh, epithelial necrosis and uh, obliterated lumen so there is no or limited uh, uh, fluid passage uh, so you have Uh, acute uh, renal failure and again something that might be uh, a response to a toxic episode it might be recoverable there might be sustained or chronic uh, uh, renal failure or renal dysfunction associated with this particular uh, intoxication now how do we from a clinical medicine point of view uh, establish uh, how uh, the kidney is functioning we use various uh, Uh, tests in in, uh, clinical science. One of these tests is the uh, development of a uh, glomerular filtration rate. Uh, This is done either by the administration of a compound uh, that is actively filtered uh, by the glomerulus, or more uh, importantly, perhaps, is the uh, analysis of uh, uh, creatinine Uh, in terms of what the creatinine levels are in the blood and the relative levels in the urine over a period of time to give you an idea of removal. These numbers can actually be used in various uh, clinical medicine formulas to yield a uh, GFR. We can also do uh, active tubular secretion of a chemical compound, uh, para amino hippuric acid. Uh, PAH, Um, this particular chemical um, is uh, used to identify whether or not we are having active tubular secretion or not. This is an administered chemical. And then we can just look at the serum waste products. Uh, Do we have uh, a a large amount of blood urea nitrogen? Uh, Folks that are in kidney failure typically will have uh, scaly uh, white powder on their skins from nitrogen imbalance. Uh, It's an indicator of uh, uh, a protein uh, catabolism and uh, lack of removal of the metabolic byproducts, catabolic byproducts of protein catabolism. Uh, And again, this is something that uh, is a symptom of renal failure. All of these can be a uh, function of a potential toxic insult uh, to this important uh, organ uh, that is set up for elimination of toxicants. Another uh, aspect of target organ toxicity is uh, pulmonotoxicity um, because the uh, gas exchange uh, function is critical to life. Uh, toxicosis, damage of the lung tissues, can be extraordinarily life-threatening. Uh, these, this organ has extremely rapid exchange. Uh, its high area. it's a mucous membrane, uh, chemicals that might react with uh, water would have the ability to uh, have a reaction on lung tissues because of the moisture content. Um, in the case, for instance, of the Bhopal uh, methacrylate uh, byproduct uh, or starting product, uh, this particular chemical um, actually uh, polymerized on contact with water. In Bhopal, some of the respiratory illness, and again, we uh, the numbers from that particular incident in Bhopal, India. Uh, amounted to, and and this was in the mid-80s, about 10 to 20,000 people impacted uh, many thousands of deaths. Uh, The respiratory illness there was because this particular chemical starts polymerizing on contact with water. And so the amount of scarring and and contact and plastics essentially forming in in lung tissue led to um, uh, pulmonotoxicity. Um, This particular organ, because of its high surface area and its reactivity, it can be very responsive to chemical irritants in terms of uh, just inflammation injury uh, and impacting of the ability to exchange oxygen necessary for respiration. Obvious carcinogens uh, in terms of smoking, allergens, mineral dusts, and various cytotoxic chemicals all can have uh, potential uh, toxic endpoints. Some of these endpoints will include uh, inflammation, uh, edema, necrosis of the tissue, fibrosis on repeated uh, injury, fibrosis like uh, emphysema, uh, a uh, lung disease, uh, or uh, in fact carcinoma. Some of the clinical manifestations of pulmonotoxicity can yield um, ARDS or Adult Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Uh, which uh, is a sufficient amount of damage to start causing cellular leakage of fluids back into the lung. Remember that the lung, uh, the membranes, uh, need to provide passage of air. If you start filling with fluids because of tissue damage, you start losing lung capacity. The outcome of ARDS is typically not good. Um, Some of the endpoints also can include uh, asthma, lung cancer, various infarcts or damaged tissue damage from uh, lack of blood flow or uh, cell death and emphysema another uh, target organ toxicology we talked about the skin the integumentary system is being the largest organ in the body and so there is a potential for direct dermotoxicity some of the manifestations of dermotoxicity include Irritant contact dermatitis, uh, allergic contact dermatitis, and we'll talk about allergens and their impact and how the cascade of effects uh, has these clinical manifestations in a separate lecture in food toxicology called uh, um, uh, Allergy. Uh, We can have uh, phototoxicity where, because the membrane of the skin is also exposed to uh, visible and ultraviolet uh, rays from the sun, we can have a chemical reaction happening uh, that uh, right there at the s- uh, surface of the skin. Uh, again, from the photoactivation of these chemicals. Uh, some photoactivation of chemicals, for instance, vitamin D, is required, uh, or uh, is a good thing. Uh, quite often, we find in toxicity, when we have phyto- phototoxicity. Uh, that uh, this is uh, a bad thing. These particular uh, chemical reactions yield uh, uh, some effects that uh, are uh, negative in terms of uh, uh, the uh, potential toxicosis. Um, We can also have uh, cellular effects, integumentary cellular effects from various uh, toxins. Uh, We saw early on in the course uh, one of the manifestations of dioxin poisoning, which is also a generalized uh, endpoint of uh, halogenated hydrocarbon uh, toxicosis, and this uh, uh, cellular uh, rash is referred to as chloracne. Uh, The particular picture here is a phytophotodermatitis, and this is from an oil that is found in citrus that this particular person had a chemical sensitivity to. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here talking about neurotoxicity because it's one of the uh, uh, endpoints, the target organ endpoints, uh, that is uh, uh, perhaps of most interesting and the most concern to, to uh, many people. Um, in terms of neurotoxicity, we have to break down the uh, nervous system. Uh, we have a central nervous system, or a CNS, and that's primarily our brain and spinal cord, and we have a peripheral, peripheral nervous system, or the PNS, that is encompassed by our sensory and motor control neurons. Uh, the neurons are made up of uh, cell body, and we have dendrites and, and axons in terms of intercellular uh, uh, communication, in terms of neural communication. There are also many other cells in terms of the nervous system, uh, the uh, glial cells uh, and some structural cells. Uh, we have talked about astrocytes as being part of the blood-brain barrier. Um, that uh, will allow nutrient transport. Um, There are various uh, oligodendrites, swan cells, and myelin uh, sheaths in terms of the structural part of neurons. There are microglia uh, and immune function interactions as well with the nervous system. These cartoons give you an idea uh, of the representations. These are pretty much high school biology representations at this point in time. But just as a refresher of uh, the interactions of these cells is typically uh, by electrical transport. What we're most uh, interested in in terms of uh, potential toxic interactions is toxins that impact the cellular structure in and of itself, but also ones that uh, uh, impact the chemical neurotransmitters uh, that are responsible for neuron to neuron transmission. Uh, The uh, micrograph there gives you an idea of a non-cartoon representation of what a neuron looks like. Now in terms of understanding neurotoxicity, we have to understand uh, some of the potential, um, some of the mechanisms of uh, uh, neurons, uh, the chemical mechanisms, and therefore, potential impact areas in terms of neurotoxic agents. Remember that in uh, neurological function, we have active transport of sodium out of the cell and potassium into the cell, and this yields an electrical potential across the axonal membrane. Um, We have a process called passive reverse transport that initiates a cascading depolarization, the buildup of the charge. Uh, At the synapse, we have neurotransmitters that are released, and they chemically transmit uh, across the gap this uh, depolarization to the next neuron. And so there is a potential for toxicosis in interrupting this chemical transport these neurotransmitters cross the synaptic cleft to receptors now in terms of where neurotoxins can have their impact uh, they can happen at the sodium potassium channels they can inhibit or stimulate and we'll see this with several marine toxins like tetrodotoxin uh, and uh, red tide algae dinoflagellates that uh, actually impact in uh, further lectures here in the course uh, neurotoxins can also bind neurotransmitter receptor sites they can inhibit uh, various areas responsible uh, various enzymes responsible for neurotransmitter catabolism and so uh, not only can it impact the receptors it can impact the enzymes but it also can impact the, uh, um, the chemicals themselves Uh, It can damage or physically impact the myelin sheath uh, on the structural support uh, for the neurons. Uh, It can cause membrane damage and morphological change, uh, and it can also stimulate just some uh, occult damage uh, necrosis. This is a quick case study here in terms of uh, a neurotoxin uh, that is of interest to uh, livestock owners. It's a chemical, a range of chemicals actually, Uh, they haven't identified specifics, they have some ideas. Uh, Yellow star thistle is a weed, an invasive weed that uh, inhabits uh, much of the Western United States. Uh, Sometimes if you look out on a grassy field, you'll see some yellow flowers. Uh, These yellow flowers don't look particularly palatable uh, because there's a lot of thorny substrates in there, but if the livestock are actually uh, limited in terms of their Uh, feed options, Uh, they'll graze on this material. Uh, There's some uh, indication, as in with uh, loco weed and some other sorts of thing, that there's an addictive property to some of these weeds and some of the chemical substrates in there. Uh, The uh, clinical manifestation is the animals uh, uh, start uh, losing uh, coherence, if you will. Uh, They start losing some aspects of brain function. Uh, on autopsy uh, a condition called necropolidial encephalomalacia essentially uh, a, a necrosis of some of the tissue of the brain is observed in response to consumption and continuous consumption of yellow star thistle in uh, livestock one of the major areas of neurotoxicosis that we will explore is called cholinesterase inhibition acetylcholine uh, is a chemical mediator, and it's responsible for the physiological transmission of nerve impulses across the synapse, and I've drawn this cartoon here just to give you an idea of the compounds of the relationship of chemistry uh, to phy- physiology to, to who you are. Uh, cholinesterase inhibition and the whole uh, neurotoxicity field has had a tremendous amount of interest in the past uh, five or so years because of the impact of terrorism and potential use of nerve agents Uh, historically we've seen nerve agents used uh, for chemical warfare um, and uh, uh, some of these nerve agents uh, have had dramatic consequences in terms of uh, highly toxic highly violent death Uh, in recent times some uh, incidences of nerve gas uh, uh, use in uh, terrorism uh, have uh, made headlines Uh, these have typically been uh, small incidents uh, but it, uh, because of the potential outcome uh, toxic outcome uh, it does uh, terrorize uh, many people now in terms of the uh, cholinesterase esterase uh, inhibition system as we um, actually have a neurotransmission process across the synaptic cleft uh, we have an enzyme acetylcholinesterase that actually hydrolyzes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine Uh, This particular enzyme is interesting because it has uh, an active site uh, that has two subsites, uh, referred to as the esteratic and the uh, anionic. And uh, we'll talk here in a a bit about uh, the chemical relation of the neurotransmitter and also of neurotoxic agents for uh, cholinesterase or acetylcholinesterase inhibition. So when we have a nerve impulse, it releases uh, acetylcholine. Uh, which is rapidly destroyed by this particular enzyme. And what this does, it allows for a normal propagated impulse. It essentially uh, turns on and turns off. If we didn't have acetylcholinesterase, we would have repeated receptor interaction, and so the cellular transmission would be always on. And so, for instance, uh, instead of the light turning on and then turning off, it's flicking on and off. And so we get an uncontrolled uh, neurological transmission. Uh, this interf- the uh, interference of acetylcholinesterase activity uh, can lead to accumulation of this neurohormone uh, acetylcholine. This next slide is, uh, actually just gives you uh, an idea of this, what we're talking about when we talk about acetylcholinesterase. It's a complex uh, enzyme molecule uh, within this uh, fairly massive and complex enzyme. There are active sites. Okay. And so when we do these representations of chemical structures of the active sites of this molecule, I want you to have at least a good understanding that there is a, a superstructure uh, that presents these active sites in terms of uh, the uh, interaction of neurotransmitters. Now this cartoon gives us the ability to kind of look at normal hydrolysis of acetylcholine by acetylcholine And so that big apparatus that I showed you in the previous slide, if if this uh, uh, blue circle here is kind of everything else, the non-active site, this protein structural support uh, for this particular enzyme. We talk about the um, uh, serine site and the uh, anionic site here as being the active ports of acetylcholinesterase. Uh, you can see that um, acetylcholine fits quite well into that docking area in terms of the uh, relative positive charge on the nitrogen uh, moiety and the relationship of this hydroxyl group in terms of binding uh, at the serine group. Um, In terms of the consequence of the hydrolysis, uh, the end product um, is a uh, a choline group, uh, and the serine group then also hydrolyzes uh, as well, throwing off an acetyl. And so we end up with an end, traditional sort of enzymatic non-consumption reaction. We have the enzyme that starts, it does its enzymatic chemical reaction, follows through, and then recharges back to what it was uh, before we started the whole process. Now, when we poison this acetylcholinesterase, uh, uh, we create uh, a moderately or totally irreversible chemical reaction, which then takes the enzyme out. It poisons it. Uh, It is no longer functional. One of the classic cholinesterase inhibiting uh, classes of chemical compounds we learned about in our pesticide lecture is uh, the organophosphates. And the organophosphates, in this particular case, uh, I've got uh, parathione. Uh, again, one of the, the dirty dozen sort of more, more bioactive and therefore more toxic uh, organophosphates or OPs. Um, for OPs, one of the chemical characteristics in terms of the structure is we have the uh, phosphate group and we have the uh, what's referred to as the leaving group. And what you find on organophosphate chemicals is that the leaving group is actually modifies the relative toxicity of the organophosphate chemical, but quite often in terms of uh, the chemical structure itself, this is what is mostly different across a range of OP pesticides. And so if we put X as this leaving group so we can kind of generalize this as OPs, organophosphate chemicals, And by the way, sometimes you'll see um, an S here, a sulfur group instead of a a carbonyl oxygen. But here's our leaving group. And so this is where the variance on a chemical by chemical basis for the range of of OP insecticides might be. But you can see that this particular um, chemical reaction uh, will have the ability to bind the serine residue on acetylcholinesterase. We have the leaving group leave, and the problem is The end product is a phosphorylation of acetylcholinesterase. Now, this toxic property is useful when you're trying to kill an insect uh, because it is neurotoxic in insects, but it is highly toxic in terms of its potential uh, uh, to uh, uh, injure uh, higher animals. Uh, The problem here is that this is, by and large, uh, somewhat irreversible. Um, There are uh, substrates, uh, antidotes, if you will, that will come in and challenge this particular bond and try and cleave it off. One of the unfortunate situations about uh, neurotoxicity from acetylcholinesterase inhibition is that poisoning, although the animal or the individual may survive, um, there are some uh, uh, neurotoxic agents that uh, uh, will have residual effects. the enzyme levels, enzyme production, uh, will uh, always be somewhat inhibited. There is some, some potential for uh, a long-term neuropathy. Now, we have tried to stress uh, on several uh, occasions in this course that uh, it's the interface of chemistry and biology, the, this thing we call toxicology. And so I always like to give a chemical representation of how these chemicals, uh, these toxicants, are interacting with the biochemicals uh, in the bridge uh, to biology. Now, this is a a very uh, unique uh, structural model. This is what's referred to as the gorge area of acetylcholinesterase. Uh, We talked about that in terms of the cartoon on the previous slides. This is a two-dimensional representation, again, of a three-dimensional protein structure. Uh, That oxyanion hole uh, is is down here in terms of what it looks like, and there is an OP binding to serine uh, right here. And so these uh, structures uh, come in and play an important role in terms of the active site of this uh, particular uh, enzyme. If we blow that up a little bit so we look at the actual chemical residues, you can see that the... Uh, in terms of the active zone of acetylcholinesterase we've got the oxyanion hole we have the serine residue uh, that's able to actually uh, bind uh, with the uh, uh, acetylcholine in this particular case we have an uh, organophosphate that's bound to this and in fact it now uh, creates a uh, uh, a, an intoxicated enzyme uh, inhibited enzyme because this uh, chemical here is now somewhat irreversible. It's a relatively strong bond. Now, one of the ways that we deal with uh, um, OPs and cholinesterase inhibition is an antidote. Uh, one of the antidotes uh, associated with uh, trying to reverse this neurotoxic consequence is TUPAM, which is pyridine aldoxime met- methyl chloride, uh, also known as TUPAM. Tupam is an antidote that needs to be given uh, relatively rapidly because uh, there can be uh, some aging and some irreversibility. Uh, But again, Tupam, this uh, aldoxime uh, compound, competes with the organophosphate for that particular site. And its binding, uh, although it competes uh, pretty successfully, it is a reversible binding. And so it can uh, end up in restoring enzyme activity. And so individuals uh, that work around neurotoxic agents, whether it be chemical warfare or folks uh, in the industry, Tupam uh, is an antidote that typically is around in the same way uh, medical offices near snake-infested countries will have uh, antivenom around. This uh, last uh, few slides is going to be a description of a case study. This is anticholinergic poisoning from herbal tea, uh, and this is New York City, 1994. Uh, What happens, for example, not that you impact the cholinesterase enzyme itself, but that you put in more neurotransmitter-type compounds uh, that uh, disrupt uh, uh, acetylcholine. Uh, This particular case has to do in 1994 in New York City, uh, when a couple uh, were actually um, uh, of uh, families were actually drinking a tea product uh, that was purchased on local stores. Uh, it's a South American tea called Yerba Mate or Paraguayan tea. It's also sold in Brazil and Peru uh, under Peruvian tea, the local uh, names. This Paraguay tea is an herbal tea uh, developed um, from uh, the plant Ilex uh, paraguayensis, and it is again native to uh, South America. Uh, this particular uh, uh, group of individuals, uh, in this particular patient, uh, it was a, uh, a collect, uh, two people, a 39-year-old man, a 38-year-old wife, shared a pot of tea, and within 30 minutes uh, they had acute uh, symptoms, including agitation and flushed skin, uh, they were transported by ambulance, uh, they had uh, fever, dilated non-reactive pupils, dry skin. Uh, mucous membranes that were drying out and uh, bowel sounds that were absent. Uh, It was diagnosed as uh, an anticholinergic poisoning. Uh, The treatment for this was uh, two doses of uh, physostigmine, which is a reversible cholinesterase inhibitor, so the idea was to inhibit cholinesterase uh, reversibly, and the signs and symptoms completely resolved. It's interesting because this particular cholinesterase inhibi- inhibitor uh, it actually comes from the calabar bean, uh, also known as the West African Doomsday Plant. Uh, it, its bioactivity was noticed by uh, the peoples of West Africa. Um, it was actually used uh, in various uh, applications, in, in, including, uh, in some cases, uh, torture of prisoners. Uh, the particular chemical, alkaloid chemical, uh, from this was used as an antidote for an anticholinergic found in that tea. Upon follow-up uh, of what was in the tea, they actually did identify um, belladonna alkaloids uh, from uh, uh, the belladonna plant, are also known as deadly nightshade, uh, atropine, uh, scopolamine, and hyoscyamine were identified uh, in, by GCMS uh, as a part of the tea. In other words, in picking the tea leaves, uh, somebody must have also picked some deadly nightshade, uh, and uh, the individuals were exposed to these uh, potentially toxic uh, levels of these particular alkaloids. So this is an interesting case because we've got one plant, the Yerba mate uh, tea, uh, impacted by another plant, deadly nightshade, in Belladonna. And, uh, and essentially the therapy or the antidote was a third plant substrate uh, from the doomsday plant of West Africa. So this all gives you uh, some idea of um, the uh, relationships of uh, disease manifestations uh, and uh, chemical intoxication in terms of target organ toxicology. Next time, what we're going to do is actually look at some other toxic endpoints, uh, toxic endpoints uh, that uh, uh, bear perhaps individual study uh, that are courses apiece. Uh, We'll take a look at teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis, again, to try to give you an introductory uh, uh, analysis of of these uh, very important toxic endpoints. Until that time, we'll see you. Thank you.